0: And as I mentioned, that is uh, our subject tonight, the doctrine of God. Who is God is one of the most fundamentally, most important questions you can ask. A.W. Tozer famously said, so famous, I believe Chris actually quoted it this morning, God's providence, but he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like, end quote. Conceiving of God correctly, it's both the starting point of theology and the apex of theology. There's really nothing more glorious than seeing a fresh God's character. You never get beyond that in theology. That's it's the goal, to know God. At the same time, if understanding the character of God is glorious, then misunderstanding the character of God is disastrous. But men in every age and every place have done just that. If some, sometimes highly religious people who devote their whole lives to trying to know God, yet they come away with a huge misunderstanding of, of God. It's really the greatest error someone can make. How can you worship a God you do not really know? And so the task of theology, which literally means the study of God, is to get to know God better. His works and his character. We want to know what God is like because we want to worship the true God. And to do this, we need to know what God has said about himself, what he's revealed about himself. We need his special revelation. It's found in the Bible. This is no small undertaking because the Bible is a pretty big book. And it says a little something about God on every page. The character of God is, is spilled out in all the pages of the Bible. But in this lesson tonight, we're going to at least start exploring the most worthy of all subjects. It's God himself. And before we get started, I want you to further think about how important the study of God is. If you get God wrong, everything else downstream, you get wrong as well. You get man wrong, you get Jesus wrong, you get salvation wrong, you're going to get the gospel wrong, and you're without hope. It's the most important thing to get right, just to remind you of the importance of knowing God rightly. I want you to think of the woman at the well. If you'd like to turn to John 4 and follow along, although I'm going to start reading John 4, 19 through 24, where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And after he convicts her of her adulterous relationships and her sin, she says back, John 4, 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So, in this passage, who's the real seeker? God is the seeker. What's he seeking? He's seeking true worshipers, those who will worship him rightly. And what makes for true worship? Worshiping him in, Christ says, spirit and truth. This woman had two essential problems with her worship. She had the wrong location and the wrong content. She believed the right location for worship was Mount Gerizim, as opposed to Jerusalem, which the Jews believed. And she believed the right content for worship was the first five books of the Old Testament. Being a Samaritan, they rejected everything else except the first five books. And Jesus corrects her on both points. Regarding the right place of worship, Jesus says it's not Gerizim, it's not even Jerusalem. Rather, the, the true place of worship, according to God, is in spirit. It's not a reference to the Holy Spirit, the reference to our spirit or your heart, your inner person. True worship is not restricted to one time and one place. Rather, God wants all of his people worshiping him at all times and in all places. And so the right location of worship is everywhere, wherever you are, as we are to do all things to his glory at all times. Now, secondly, regarding the right content of worship, Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. Meaning, he's affirming that the one true God really did reveal himself and disclose himself to Israel. That meant their sacred text, the Old Testament, all of it, was true. To reject it is to reject God. God must be known rightly to be worshiped rightly. He does not tolerate error or deceit. To know him rightly, he's given us his word. And so we have to know what God has said about himself from the word if we are to worship him. Worshiping God in ignorance just doesn't cut it. He doesn't accept that. And it just results in idolatry because man in his fallen state is most prone to take God down off of his throne and bring him to earth and reshape him in our own image. All is resulting in a false God. Isn't that what happened in Athens? If you think to Acts 17, Paul is before the the learned men in Athens. He says this, Acts 17, 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. These were Greek philosophers spending, spending all day just learning and thinking, loving knowledge. But how does Paul describe their worship in verse 23? He says, It's in ignorance. You're just ignorant. God doesn't receive it, doesn't accept it, no matter how spiritual or intellectual one might be. And as a result, what was their spiritual state? Lost. These were men of great learning, but he says they were lost, they were blind, they were. Hopeless. And furthermore, if you keep reading Paul's message, he doesn't actually immediately tell them about Jesus. In fact, he doesn't get to Jesus until the very end. He realizes these people have so much wrong about who God is, he's just going to go back to the beginning and recalibrate their doctrine of God, who God is. And so he, he tells them first that there's only one God. He's the creator. He doesn't need you, you need him. He made all things. He's sovereign over all things, sovereign over your life, and so on. All have gone astray from this one God, and he's calling ev- men everywhere now to repent. Only then does Paul actually get to Jesus in that message on Mars Hill. You see, we can't even hope to make sense of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, if we don't know who God is. If you don't know his character, the gospel is meaningless. All this goes to say, the doctrine of God, shouldn't surprise you, but it's absolutely essential to theology, all of it. It's absolutely essential to worship. It's absolutely essential to right living. All false teaching can be traced back to some lie about God. All of our sin in life can be traced back to some lie we've momentarily believed about God. And all our fears and doubts and worries we give into can be traced back to some lie we are again believing about God. And if you're going to counter this, you need to know God. You need to know your God. How well do you think you, you really know the God you, you worship, you serve? There's many in the church who I would say they, they don't know him very well at all. But all this goes to say, with the rest of our time this evening, we're going to be studying theology proper, is what it's called, the doctrine of God. This is a basic Bible doctrine series going through the, the main branches or, or uh, forms of, of theology. And the doctrine of God is, is right up there at the top of the list. This is not just to fill your minds, but to, to give you a little sampling to help you know your God better, that you might worship him, not just in spirit, but also in truth, And live rightly before him. There is a ton of ground to cover to try and cram in the the doctrine of God into one lesson. But that's what we're going to try and do. Just two parts. The attributes of God and then the nature of God. But those are two big parts. The attributes of God and then the nature of God. First with the attributes of God. We're not even trying to be exhaustive. This is a basic Bible doctrine series. And I'm going to try and keep the word basic true. But I think the best way to give you some introduction to who God is, is to to cover his his character. And his character is revealed on every page of scripture. But certain attributes of his character just keep coming up time and time again. They're emphasized throughout. I think these are worth highlighting. So we're going to move briskly here. But I'm going to highlight 10 major attributes of God, just a sampling to to give you a a taste of who this God is. There there are more than 10, but we're going to just highlight 10 attributes of God to give you an introduction to the the attributes of God. The first six are what's known as the non-moral attributes, and then we'll finish with four, what are called moral attributes. Okay, first, omnipresence. Omnipresence, the word omni meaning all, meaning therefore that God is all present or everywhere present. I'll give you a couple of verses with each of these attributes. Psalm 139, 7 and 8, where he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And then 1 Kings 8:27, <clears throat> Solomon says. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Solomon knew God was not actually going to live in this little temple. You have to remember God is spirit. We just learned in John four twenty four, He does not have size or physical dimensions. He's not a being confined to space. So when you think of God as being omnipresent, don't just think of some really, really big being who just stretches infinitely in all directions. No, God's omnipresence mean, means he's everywhere present in the fullness of his being at all times. We want to think about that a little further though. I remember reading some illustrations somewhere of a four-year-old girl who was eating ice cream with her dad. And she asked her dad, where is God? And the father replied, well, well, everywhere. God is everywhere. And so she asked again, well, does that mean God is in my ice cream? The father's a little uneasy with saying God's in your ice cream, but he had to confess God's everywhere. So I guess, yes, God is, God is in your ice cream. And then she said, does that mean I'm eating God? This is what happens when a four-year-old confronts your theology. If you don't have a four-year-old, you will get questions like this. And they make you really think, what do you really believe? What's the answer to that question? Is God present in ice cream? Is God present in unbelievers? Is God present in hell? These questions help us think more precisely about God's omnipresence. There's actually more to it than the simple definition of God is everywhere present. More precisely, but still in a basic sense, we would say actually, biblically, God is present differently in different places. God can be present to sustain. And that's in all of creation. God can be present to bless. Like in heaven. Or in the believer. And God can be present to curse. Like in hell. Yes God is present in hell. It's not the complete absence of God. It's where he's present in his fullness. But only to curse. Not to bless. That's what makes hell so terrifying. And for unbelievers... God's omnipresence is meant to be terrifying. Where can they go to escape this God whom they're sinning against? How can they avoid his wrath? But for believers, God's omnipresence is meant to be one of our greatest comforts. Where can you go where this God's guiding, caring hand is not over you? I mean, Even if you were to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's still with you. Psalm 23 verse 4. Whatever your trial or your suffering, wherever you go, if you know Christ, God is present with you to bless. These are encouraging truths. Secondly, second attribute, i are going to go pretty much that quickly through them, is omniscience. Omniscience. And God's omniscience means he has all knowledge. God knows everything. Psalm 139 verses 1 through 4. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. We can add to this Hebrews 4.13. says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God's knowledge is truly comprehensive. It's not bound by time. For example, God did not have to wait until the 20th century to learn E equals MC squared. God knows everything past, present, and future. Also, God's knowledge is not bound by memory. Like our knowledge is bound by memory. For example, how long does it take God to think of something or remember something? If you were to ask God how many grains of sand are there in the world, would he have to stop and, and technically count really, really fast like a supercomputer? No. God's knowledge is perfect. It's already complete. It's instantaneous and lacking nothing. And when you think about it, again, this knowledge, God's omniscience is terrifying to the unbeliever. Their sins We'll all find them out. They're going to have to give an account for every transgression, every evil word, thought, and deed. And God knows them all. There's no forgetting, there's no hiding. He knows them all. But for believers, again, God's omniscience is our comfort because even though He knows all of our sins too, it also reminds us He can't forget His covenant, He can't forget His promises. And that includes to forgive us all of our sins in Christ. God has sworn he cannot lie. He can't forget that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And his omniscience is now our comfort. Thirdly, omnipotence. It's the third of, of the omni-attributes. Omnipotence means that God is all-powerful. True, really defined it as God is, able to, God is able to do anything he wants to do that's in accordance with his nature. Jeremiah 32, 17, it says, O Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now, atheists, for years, have comforted themselves and their disbelief of God with this age-old riddle that supposedly disproves God and his, at least his omnipotence. You may have heard it before. I remember hearing it before I became a believer, freshman year of college. Another girl in the dorms made this her argument. The question apparently disproves God, or again, at least his omnipotence. But can God create a stone so large that he cannot lift? Can God create a rock or a stone so heavy that he can't actually lift it? If the answer is yes, he can create such a stone, it would disprove his omnipotence because he, he can't lift it. He's unable to lift it. The answer is no, that he can't make such a stone. Well, that also disproves his omnipotence. He's not powerful enough to make such a stone. And so either way, apparently God's omnipotence is disproved, and therefore there is no God. Or so they say. But unfortunately for atheists, it's, it's a, it's an interesting riddle, but it's not a legitimate question because the problem with their logic is that they are doing well refuting a God of their own making. They're just not refuting the God of the Bible. God's omnipotence, according to the Bible, means that God is able to do all things that are in harmony with his attributes and his nature, but God cannot do all things. God's omnipotence does not, does not mean he can do all things. He cannot contradict his own nature. He can only do things that are compatible with his attributes. Several things God cannot do. God cannot lie, Titus 1.2. God cannot fail to keep his promises, Numbers 23.19. God cannot be tempted by evil, James 1.13. There are many things God can't do. Within within the realm of his nature and attributes, he can do all things, but he cannot contradict himself. God's inability in those cases is not his weakness. That's actually part of his strength, his perfection. It's like in baseball, if there's a batter who's only able to hit home runs. Every time he's up to bat, it's just a home run. You would say this batter is incapable of hitting singles or doubles or triples, but Is that inability a weakness? No, it's just a consequence of his true strength. And the good news, though, for those in Christ, God has all power within his attributes. He will use it. He's promised to use it, among many other things, to guard us. It's because of his power that we can say, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? There's no challengers. Nothing is able to separate us from God because of his power. He assures that we're secure in his will forever. Many more implications to his power when rightly understood. With all these attributes, even though, again, I'm just giving you a sample. That's all we can do here. Uh, But we we have to understand God as he reveals himself. Not as Greek thinkers once thought of him or as our modern day uh, philosopher might think of him. We want to know how he's revealed himself truly in his word and leave it there. All right, we got to move on. Number four, self existence, a fourth attribute of God. Giving you a sample of 10 attributes of God to help you know his nature, his character, rather. And fourth would be his self existence. God's self existence means that he has the ground of existence in himself, which is to say, he exists on his own. He does not owe his existence to any other thing. Rather, Every other thing depends on God for its existence. The painting owes its existence to the painter. The baby owes its existence to its parents. God owes his existence to no one, to nothing. God's self-existence is akin to his independence. That the theological word for this is aseity, aseity. God exists perfectly apart from creation. He does not need creation. You might find this in Acts 17, 24 and 25, back to Paul's sermon, where he tells them, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. You also see this derived from Exodus 3.14, where God tells Moses his special name. He said, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God's revealing his covenant name. His covenant name is Yahweh in Hebrew. That's derived really from the the verb to be, haya in Hebrew. And uh, what God is communicating by giving his covenant name Yahweh that's derived from the verb to be, he's showing that that's part of his essence is his self-existence. He just is. He's the God who just is. He was, he is, he evermore shall be. This is part of his essence as the creator. It can be very hard for people to wrap their minds around God's self-existence. That's understandable. Because everything we know and interact with, including ourselves, had a beginning. Everything you can think of except God, had a beginning. So it's, it's, well, in a sense inconceivable for us to think of not having a beginning. Whether you can really wrap your mind around that or not, it really does help highlight what we call the, the creator creation distinctive, a distinction, and that there's just a vast qualitative fundamental difference between God and us. He's just a different order of being. God's self-existence confronts us with God's otherworldliness. We call it his transcendence. And you could take that and run with it and go very deep. But our reaction to it should always be worship. The definition of worship is ascribing worth and praise to that which is most worthy. and, And who else or what else is worthy of our adoration than, than such a God, this uncreated self-existent being. He made us. How can the worship of any created thing compare to the worship of the one who's uncreated, God? It's one of the reasons God hates idolatry. There's just that, I made that thing. It's not worthy of the worship that I am worthy of, he would say. God's acety also puts us in our place. It reminds us, you know, the world does not revolve around us. Life, does not revolve around us. And most certainly God does not revolve around us. Just the opposite. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need anything for his being, for his glory. You need him. You're actually counting on him for every millisecond of your existence. You continue to exist for the unbeliever, even in their rebellion, because God allows it. He's actually upholding him. Whatever you think God owes you in life, just delete it because he owes you nothing. You owe him everything. And so don't grumble and complain against this God. Don't don't moan because he hasn't ordered everything in life for your glory and your praise. Any good thing you receive is a gift coming down from the father of lights. It's an aspect of his mercy But just let all this create a big vision of God in your minds. God is really big. You and I are really small. God's at the center of all things. You are not. And I'll tell you, that realization is the first step in fixing so many theological and practical problems people have. They just, they they invert that. They're really big. God's really small. That's where you get problems. Number five, eternality. Fifth attribute, eternality. And God's eternality is very much related to his self-existence. If city is God's independence from creation, his eternality is his independence from time, right? He's independent from creation and his eternality means he's independent from time. Just as God is self-existent, it means he also has no beginning and no end. God is not an eternal being. He's Lord of time. He's separate from it. He's above it. Yet he's free to enter it for his purposes. That's what the Bible teaches. Again, two verses. Psalm 90, verses 2 through 4. Moses says, Before the mountains were born. Or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight, are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You also have 2 Peter 3.8, which is like the New Testament equivalent of that verse. Where Peter says, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Now, just like self-existence, God's eternality is just very difficult for us to truly conceive of. We we can sort of imagine what it's like to have no end, but really going backwards, we really cannot imagine what it's like to have no beginning. It, It just goes beyond us. But like I said before, this is part of what makes God so different from us. And additionally, God relates to time differently than we do. I mean, think about everything that's happened in the past 2,000 years of human history, and, and all that passed to God and really no time at all. Have you ever watched the steam rise off of a cup of coffee or hot tea? That little vapor, and then it rises up, and just in a millisecond, it's gone. That's like your whole life to God. That's, how, that's all of human history to God. It comes and goes like nothing, Psalm 144. Now, I personally believe better appreciating God's relationship to time helps solve many of our human objections to God's character. You may hear someone say, if God really loved me, he wouldn't let me suffer for this long. I've basically heard people say that. If he really cared about me, he wouldn't let me suffer for this long. How do you respond to that question? Once you bring in God's eternality, what does that mean for this long to God? To God, any duration of your suffering on earth is a millisecond. And remember, God made you to be eternal. If it's true, for example, that that a lifetime of suffering might accomplish God's eternal purposes, then it's worth it. To him, it's worth it. If momentary sufferings are producing an eternal weight of glory, like Romans says, then it's worth it. You just try looking at your life, your blessings, and your trials from an eternal perspective, God's eternal perspective. It will change the way you see them and hopefully respond to them. God may give you trials. They may feel like an eternity. You don't want an eternal trial. They're momentary because God has eternity in mind, and hopefully you see the eternal lesson behind them. Its sixth attribute is immutability. Immutable. Immutability. This refers to God's unchangeableness. You can pick whichever one's easier to spell for you and write it down. Immutability or unchangeableness. They're both kind of hard. This means that God does not change. Now, we have to be more specific. Specifically, God does not change in regard to his being, his attributes, and his promises. We have to be more precise. He does not change in regard to his being, his attributes, and his promises. Malachi 3.6, where he attests, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. Read that verse this morning. Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So, like we said, God does not change in relation to his own being, his own attributes, or his own promises. But I throw this in here. So, contrary to ancient and medieval philosophers, even Christian philosophers, God does genuinely act and feel emotion and respond. Philosophers in the past have reasoned that if God could change, if it were possible for God to change in any way, it would always be a change for the worse. Or rather, I should I should rephrase that. If they, they reason that if God could change, it would either be for the better or for the worse. If God changed for the better, so if God ever made a change for the better, that would mean he wasn't perfect to begin with. How could he really be improved if he's already perfect? If God changed for the worse, well, then he's no longer perfect. So they reason that any change in God would would, uh, defeat his perfection, would go against his perfectionism. And so therefore, God must not be able to change at all. They conceived of God's immutability, God's perfection, like, like a marble, perfectly balanced on the tip of a needle, that any change at all, it, it's going to fall off the needle. Any change at all will mean it's less than perfect. And so they, they reasoned that God can't change in any respect, including like emotion, for example, or, or interaction with the world. God can't display anything real. When the Bible talks about love or hate, it's, it's not actually genuine. God can't have any emotion. That's a type of change. But the problem with this view is is it's just based on human reasoning, not scripture, right? The Bible plainly portrays God as feeling emotions from love to hatred. He has a response to this world. It's an unchanging response. He always frowns and, and judges sin. He always blesses and approves obedience. He's unchanging in his responses, but they are genuine. And God's emotions and responses are not simple anthropomorphisms. God's love for the world is not a facade, nor his displeasure over sin. These are part of his perfections. Now, we as believers, though, should be very thankful he does not change when it comes to his nature or his promises. Our salvation is based on his promises. I mean, just think, if God were to change his mind, just because he felt like it. If you were the type of God who could do such a thing and change his mind on our election, our calling, our justification, our adoption, that means we would be damned, literally. We could have no hope. We could have no security. Even think about this, even in glory, 10,000 years from now, we would never know if God just might change his mind and flip the script. Evil is now good. Good is now evil. And we're all on the outside. No, but the fact that God is fixed in his perfections, he's unable to change in his true perfections, that gives us confidence to trust him. Because he is so unchanging, rightly understood, we can literally put our lives on the line knowing that what he has said concerning us will come to pass. Again, you'll find all of these, for believers, all of these truths become a great comfort and uh, something you give thanks for and at the same time, all of these truths of God, God's nature and character become a terror for the one who does not believe. Well, we still have a ways to go. So, number seven, we're going to now switch. And the final four are the moral attributes. At least a few of what we call the moral attributes of God. So, number seven is holiness. Holiness. The word holy means set apart or distinct. And in reference to God, he is set apart or holy in two ways. And first, he's he set apart from his creation, meaning he's transcendently holy. He's not a part of creation. He's not a part of the created order. He's set apart in his being. And second, he's ethically holy. He's free from evil. He's free from sin. You see this in Isaiah 6, three where the angelic beings cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And also in Leviticus eleven forty-five, 45, God says, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy for I am holy. And God's holiness really becomes the pattern for us to imitate. So it goes with all of God's moral attributes. We are to imitate them. God wants his people to be holy, to be free from sin. In fact, mentioning Leviticus, the theme of Leviticus is holiness. God is giving Israel all these laws just so that they would be holy and set apart from the nations around them. God wants them to be different. If you want really more of an understanding of God's holiness, just just think of the Leviticus 10, the, the Nadab and Abihu incident where these were two sons of Aaron, their top dog priests. Aaron's the high priest, and God just gave them specific directions for how they are to worship and sacrifice before him. But it says they offered strange fire on the altar and the incense. They did something uh, apart from what God had commanded. And as a result, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, killed them both on the spot. God did this for a reason, and their sin was just not doing precisely what God had done. That They failed to treat God as holy. If this seems wrong to you, just remember that for God, it's not wrong to take human life. He made human life. we can take human life whenever he wants. It's not immoral for God to take human life. He's the creator. What is wrong is profaning his name and his glory. When some animated clay he made profanes his name that's wrong and that's what nadab and abihu did by ignoring his commands by profaning him especially as priests who should have known better holiness is the main requirement for coming near to god for god is holy god will literally kill to uphold his holiness nothing is more serious than treating god as holy Later in the text, God did not even allow Aaron to mourn his sons. He took him out as an example that all Israel would fear and treat this God as holy. And the church today needs a major wake-up call to the holiness of God. It's only his mercy that keeps back his wrath and his judgment. On all the people who claim his name, but profane it. The one who Takes Christ's name, but then proceeds to drag that name through the mud by living in an unrepentant sin. But just living like those in the world. Just need to remember, God is not mocked. There will be a reckoning. You are to be holy as your heavenly father is holy. Number eight is righteous or righteousness. Righteousness. Righteousness, justice. They kind of go together. Two different words in the English, but they're derived from the same word group in the Greek and the Hebrew. They're closely related. And God's righteousness means he always does what is right. He always does what is right. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says of God the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without an injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm thirty three, four and five says, "The word of the Lord is upright; He loves righteousness and justice." You now, all throughout history, men have questioned the righteousness and justice of God, thinking, for example, how can a, a just, how can a fair God send people to hell forever? It just doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem just. But we have to again remember who defines right and righteousness man or God? God does. Again, the problem is that men like to bring God down off of his throne and conform him in our image, remake him according to our likeness, and then, you know, pass judgment on him. If ever God's actions fail to line up with man's sense of justice, then it has to be God who's in the wrong. It couldn't be us. Our sense of justice is wrong. But no, scripture affirms God is perfect in all of his ways including his righteousness and his justness. He, he's the one who defines right and just. And right is whatever conforms to his character. God himself is the ultimate standard of right and wrong. He holds justice in his hands. And so whenever man's sense of justice and God's sense of justice fail to line up, it is man's sense of justice that needs to change, not God's. And that's just Romans 9, 20 and 21. And God's righteousness should make all men fear, because the bad news is we are not righteous. We fall short of his righteousness. And we're not holy. We've actually transgressed his rightness, his sense of what is right. And the consequence of that is God's wrath, which some list as a separate attribute of God, but we won't cover that here. But Romans 118 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All of mankind is not in the right with God. We're in the wrong with God. And so we we desperately need to be made right with God. Otherwise, we're going to find that wrath and be cast away from him forever. So the question then is, how is a man made right with God? It's an age-old question. How are we justified? How are we made righteous, made right with God. And scripture teaches there's one and only uh, one and only one way. It's by faith in his son, Christ, by faith alone. God's grace is shown when he offers to make us right with him by his own doing. He made a way that we can be made right with him by offering up his son. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. We'll save most of that for the doctrine of salvation, and learn about this thing we call justification. But as believers, we should always maintain a holy reverence for God's righteousness. We don't measure up. But because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins in our place on the cross. Because he bore God's wrath in our place. propitiation is the word for that. That we can be made righteous. We need to always remember God's amazing grace that he made a way for us to be made righteous as he is. All right. Well, almost there. Number nine is goodness. A ninth attribute. Goodness. This means that God is good. Now he himself is the standard of goodness, but he always acts accordingly. There is no evil or sin or wickedness in God. And, You might take it for granted, but it is incredibly good news because it would be absolutely terrifying to live in a universe ruled by a creator God who was not good, who was evil. Psalm 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And Psalm 100, verse 5, says, For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. God's goodness really encompasses two other well-known attributes, you might say, and that's mercy and grace. Mercy and grace, you could say they're expressions of his goodness and his kindness. God's mercy can be thought of as uh, not giving people what they do deserve. And grace can be thought of as giving people what they don't deserve. And when God saves someone, he's giving them both. He's giving them mercy in that he's not sending them hell. Which is what they deserve, and showing them grace by bringing them to heaven, which they don't deserve. And God's goodness is even shown in a measure to those who hate Him the lost, the wicked, the rebellious. Even as they persist in their rebellion, God shows goodness in giving them time to repent. That was the message in 2 Peter. He allows them to exist in that rebellion, and He continues to shower them with what's called common grace. He gives them many good things in this life. Everyone receives more than he deserves in this life from God. And for us who have received even more than that, his special grace, his special goodness in Christ, we should give all the more thanks for his goodness. Never forget his goodness. Lastly, number 10 would be love. Final attribute that we'll consider here, the love of God. God's love can be a little bit tricky to define because it's not like human love in some respects. One way we can think of love biblically is, is benefiting others. God's love seeks to benefit others to do that, which is best for others. And the thing is though, that the most loving thing God can do is to give of himself to others. What else would benefit us more than just knowing God, receiving God? What else is more precious than God himself? What greater thing could he give to us than himself? There is nothing greater. That is what he has done in creation first and then in salvation second. First John 4.8 tells us the one who does not know God, does not love, does not know God, for God is love. And back in Exodus 34, verse 6, God is proclaiming his own nature. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The problem today is that all too many think of love as merely an emotion. Love is, is a warm, fuzzy feeling you have for another. But God's love for humanity is not It's not like this. His affections are not detached, but God's love is not just an emotion. It's an action. It's this unconditional, decisive decision to benefit others irrespective of their worth. And that's what he did for the church. He would do that which was most loving and giving himself, providing a way that they might be with him forever. Just think about how the following verses tell us what love is to God. Let's let the word define God's love for us. You do have John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave. There's an action with this love. He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Very similar to 1 John four ten. And this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. God's love always came with teeth, with an action. It is demonstrated. And that's Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If that love is never demonstrated, it's kind of easy to call into question. Is it really love? but God's love is demonstrated. This is how God loves us. And this is how we are then called to love others as we are to reflect God's moral attributes. Think about this. Jesus summarized the entire law, everything God expects of us, or at least his old covenant people, but he summarized it all in just two commandments. And they both had to do with love, loving God and loving others as yourself. And those two still govern us today. God made us to do only that which was loving toward him and others. And we should live by that standard toward our spouse, toward our children, toward the church, the world, even our enemies. We're called to love righteously, to lay down our lives for others, to do that which is best for others as God defines it, just like Jesus did for us. And here, especially, we should be imitators of God. Ephesians 5.1. Well, I told you at the beginning, it's just a sampling, and truly, this is just a sampling of only 10 of the attributes of God. This is a massive subject. It's kind of like when you go to a nice restaurant, and afterward, dessert rolls around to bring out the cart. You know the cart. They're serious when it takes a cart. Maybe it's got like 10 plates on it, we each just have like a slice of one of their dessert options and you maybe get, let's just like a little taste of each one, a little tiny bite. That's all we've done tonight. We've given you just a sampling of a sampling. And behind it is a huge feast, a feast that takes us all eternity to, to devour, knowing this God in his depth. But we still have to start somewhere. Still, I would urge you to, to take A study like this, take the study of God himself further on your own. You do that first and foremost, reading your Bibles, knowing God of the word. And what else better is there for you to do than to get to know your God? But for our time together with this study of theology proper, we'll leave his study of of his attributes right there. And time's almost up, but I wanted to squeeze in one more subject though. It's kind of essential if we're going to talk about the doctrine of God and it's the nature of God. So we just covered the character of God or the attributes, but now real quick, the nature of God. And here, I'm just going to introduce you to the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is under the nature of God. This is fundamental to God's nature. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most important doctrines in all Christianity. At the same time, one of the most difficult to understand. Why is it so important or so useful it 's kind of like climbing a mountain. You do all the hard work to to climb a mountain. you get to the very top you 're then rewarded with the best view. you, you get the, the greatest view of, of everything else, and likewise if you 're able to to scale higher up the doctrine of the Trinity, you, you get a, a better view of who God is. This is part of god 's essence this is part of the essence of how God himself exists that 's Amazing to behold, the challenge is this is not an easy mountain to climb. It's kind of like Mount Everest, and we for sure won't get to the very top. We are finite. He is infinite. But the more you you try and scale the mountain, and you'll get a better view of who this God is, and that's our goal. For many, the the Trinity is hard to understand because it's so otherworldly. It's so different. It should be obvious, but it's worth saying God is not like us. He's not a creature. He's not a man. Stop thinking of God like, just like a human. That's part of our problem. That God exists as an entirely unique being. He's transcendent. His existence transcends the universe and material existence. He really is a being beyond comprehension, but we're going to do what we can. We can go as high as scripture will allow us to go. And we go no further. People who go further, go up past the oxygen zone and, and die. And they go into false teaching. We're just going to go as far as scripture allows us to go when it comes to what we know of the Trinity, who this God really is. The the simplest way to boil it down, you know, keeping with the, the basic in the basic Bible doctrine, you can define the Trinity by affirming three truths. You want to know the doctrine of the Trinity? You, it comes by affirming three truths. All three of them. They all go together. First, God eternally exists. As three persons. God eternally exists as three persons Father, Son, and Spirit. Second, each person is fully God. Each person is fully God. And then third, yet there's only one God. Yet there's only one God. You put all three together, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. What this is saying is God is one in his being or essence, there's only one God. He is one in essence, but he's three in persons. And this shows that there's both a unity and a diversity within the Godhead. I'll just say, if you remember these three statements, if you stick to them, you'll be well off. Pretty well off. God eternally exists as three persons. Each person is fully God, yet there's one God. Now, again, as much as I'd like to to dive into this, I'm not going to give you proofs of these doctrines. I'm not going to take time to prove these to you from scripture, but each of these three truths can be overwhelmingly supported by scripture. This is why we believe it. It's just because it's what the Bible says. It's not a contradiction. It is a paradox. It's not saying God is one and three at the same time in the same respect. That would be a contradiction. He's one and three at the same time, but in different respects. That's more of a paradox, not a contradiction. Nonetheless, the only reason we believe this is because the Bible says so. The Bible does affirm all three statements. We, we put them all together and, and keep them together best we can. But we're just going to say what the Bible says. God is three persons. You have, for example, like Matthew 28, 19. Jesus tells his disciples to baptize others in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit on equal footing, he puts the Son and the Spirit next to the Father. That's blasphemous, unless these three persons are are part of the Godhead and divine. And you have many other, we call them Trinitarian formulas throughout the New Testament. Each person is fully God. The Father is fully God, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. The Son is fully God, John 1, 1, John 20, 28. The Spirit is fully God, Acts 5, 3 through 4. Don't bother writing those down. Just know that the deity of Father, Son, and Spirit can be soundly proven throughout the Bible. So God is three persons. You'll find many a chapter or verse on that. Each person is fully God, same thing. But there's only one God. You know, you, you only take the first two statements, you have polytheism, uh, polytheism right? God is three persons. Each person is, is fully, uh, fully God. You stop right there, you have three gods. And we believe in three gods, but that's not what the Bible teaches. There's only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, the Lord is one. James 2.19, God is one. And so we just let it be. This is what Scripture teaches. There's only one God, one in his essence, one in his being, but three in his personhood. Now, when regarding these three persons, what, what does that really mean? What makes them different? Scripture does affirm some differences. Overall, the difference among the persons of the Trinity is the way in which they relate to one another and to the world. And these are meaningful distinctions, but not distinctions in being or essence. Along these lines, I can summarize for you. Each of the members of the Trinity are are seen in the Bible, having different functions, roles, and activities. I'll give you a sampling. We see them having different roles in creation. Who made the world? God is the right answer. But we might say the father spoke creation into existence. He said, let there be light. Genesis 1.3. The son carried out the creation decreed and actually brought about things. John 1.3 says in Christ, all things were made. Same thing with Colossians 1. We also say the spirit sustained creation and manifested God's presence. You see in Genesis 1.2, the spirit was moving over the face of the waters. The triune God made the world, but these three persons played different roles. Same thing as salvation, very parallel to salvation. The father planned redemption. The father predestined some to adoption. And it was the father who sent the son into the world. Ephesians one, three through six. It was the son who obeyed the father and he accomplished redemption by giving his life on the cross. It's Ephesians 1, 7 through 12. But then the spirit comes in who seals redemption. He gives new life. He applies redemption and powers sanctification. It's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. They have different roles, different activities, different responsibilities. And there's a different chain and command. Within the Trinity, the son submits his will to the father and the spirit submits submits his will to the Father and to the Son. This submission or subordination and role does not mean the members are inferior to one another. Rather, the submission is only uh, in their function. It's not a submission of being or essence. It's just a submission of function. It's part of the, the unity and the cohesiveness of God's Trinitarian nature. If I can quickly mention... Common uh, Trinitarian errors from church history, the, the top three, and they come by denying points one, two, and three. Right? Uh, the basic way to understand the Trinity, just stay safe, affirm three truths. God eternally exists as three persons. Each person is fully God, yet there's only one God. But throughout church history, some have denied these three points and they, they turn into certain errors. First is modalism, which denies statement number one. It claims God does not really exist as three distinct persons. God's just one God, one person. And he appears in three different modes or forms. And you might say, like, what's the difference? But it's really denying the personal relationship within the Trinity. So when Jesus is praying to the Father in Gethsemane, it's just a sham. It's not really, there's nothing actually happening there. Because the the, the three persons of the Trinity are just different modes. There's no, there's no bite to the personhood of, of God. The second error is called Arianism. denies statement number two. Arianism claims that the Son and the Holy Spirit are not divine. They're not fully God. They were created by the Father. They had a point in time and space. They're creations. They're not part of God. And they deny the deity of the Son and the Spirit, which again goes against Scripture. Then the third error is called tritheism, which denies statement number three. And it's basically polytheism, that there's just, there's three gods. And uh, of course, scripture is so clear in all of these, but especially that there's only one God. We are monotheistic. The simple lesson to learn from these errors is that regardless of how clear the doctrine of the Trinity is to you, however much you understand or don't understand, you stick to the three statements, which are backed by scripture, that you're safe. You're just saying what scripture says. You can take him quite high up the mountain because scripture says a lot about God's nature. And so do so. But always make sure you're being guarded and guided by scripture, not philosophy, not man's reasoning unaided by scripture, but let the word be your guide and God's nature. Just to finish, we might ask, why is the doctrine of the Trinity so important? What's at stake denying it as some do today still? But although this is a vast question, in short, the atonement is at stake, for one. I mean, if Jesus is a created being and not God, it's impossible for him to have made a full atonement for our sins. To fully propitiate the infinite wrath of God on the cross It's not possible for a creation. And further, we can't trust Jesus or the Spirit in their work as intercessors for us. You get the Trinity wrong, you're going to find a domino of getting so many other things wrong. But getting the Trinity right, it actually opens, opens up the door for understanding many of the things, including humanity. For example, God programmed Trinitarian truths like headship and submission into marriage, for example. It's the basis of our roles in marriage, come from the Trinity. Also, the church body. God designed this thing called the church to reflect his own unity among diversity. In the Godhead, there's an essential unity, yet a diversity. And he made the church to be the same way. The fact that Jesus prayed to his father, which was a genuine prayer. He prayed for our oneness, just as he and the father are one. That prayer was based on Trinitarian truths. We would do well to ponder. You think about the Trinity, and it can boggle the mind, but it should elicit wonder and worship. It is, it's worth your time to think about these things. It's worth your time to, to try and get to know your God. All we've done tonight, this is, this is a little Bible study, equipping you with some basic Bible doctrine about God. You, though, have to take it further. You've got to take what you've learned. Dwell on it. Go further with it. Read your Bibles. And, and sit in awe of this God. Let the knowledge of God fuel your true worship. This is Chris's point this morning in his sermon, that we need to know our God and sit in reverence of him. Our theological and practical problems in life are always going to be traced back to some wrong view or belief about God in our heart of hearts. So you want to fix that, you'd be a little more Mary, a little less Martha. Even in the church, we're busy with many things, even sometimes serving so much. And we can lose sight of, of just sitting at the feet of Jesus and, and knowing him, letting him teach, worshiping. You need to go to your word and, and, and read it in depth, day in, day out, ponder. And like David says, who this God is, that you might know him, behold him further. You might get a little higher up that mountain and then worship with your lives uh, with your lips, you can say you worship in spirit and truth, like that woman at the well came to learn. That's our desire. Let's seal that desire in prayer as we finish our time. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, that—that's our hearts cry to you this evening. We've—we've we've gotten a, in a sense, a small sampling. Yet in another sense, a, an overwhelming taste of who you are. There's more than we can really consider, and it can be overwhelming, but. Wouldn't have it any other way. I don't want a God that can fit in a box and and fit in our minds and and fully in our comprehension. You are the one true God. And and we, we need to sit in awe of you. And I pray you do convict us that we're so prone to comfort and ease, complacency and entertainment in our culture, we really honestly don't care who you are. We don't care to get to know you more. We we far more care about ourselves. But I pray you show us that our actual delight is meant to be found in knowing you and rightly relating to you through your son and serving you. We are meant to taste and see that you're good and our greatest joy actually comes in in you. You've designed eternity with that in in mind that we would just behold your glory forever and that's enough to fulfill us forever. You give us the privilege to start doing that now and to have a, a taste of that now and may we not take that for granted. Convict us to seek you, knowing that we will find you in your word. Thank you for our time together, though. May it benefit us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.